I think that song is really, really, really neat. I had not heard it before Mark uh, showed it to me earlier this week, but it does. It presents the life of, of Jesus almost starting with the, the Passion Week as its own story, but then it, it backs up farther back to the, the, His birth and it, and it tells the story going forward leading up to Easter. Uh, but I don't want you church to, to, to miss that the story that is Resurrection Sunday morning goes back far, far, far farther than the manger on Christmas. It goes back way farther than that first page of your New Testament. It goes all the way back uh, to the beginning of your Bible. Um, I'm so excited that we have kids here today because I bet a bunch of them will raise their hands what I'm about to ask. I've asked it before in a different context. How many of y'all like Disney? Any of y'all like Disney at all? I do. I do. I love it. Any of y'all ever like Beauty and the Beast? Yes, yes, yes. There's a song at the beginning of the movie Beauty and the Beast called Belle that is sang by who? Belle. Yeah, Belle sings the song Belle. It's about Belle. Um, and the idea of the song is that she's odd. Now, why she's odd, I don't know, because all she does is do things like read books, and we all do that. Um, but she's singing a song called Bell, and she's picked up a book, and she's looking at the book, and one of the lines in the song reads, Oh, isn't this amazing? It's my favorite part because you'll see. Here's where she meets Prince Charming, but she won't discover that it's him till chapter 3. That she's reading the book, and she's telling other people about it, and she's like, don't you get it? This book is great, because all the important stuff is there from the very beginning, but you don't see how it all comes together until later. And the whole, the the joke is, well, it's not really a joke, but the entire movie is the same thing. That's why there's the line in in, in the titular song, Beauty and the Beast. This is a tale as old as time. It's a song as old as rhyme. That you see these same characters introduced at the very beginning, but they don't reach their climax until the end when the beast becomes the prince. And you realize, oh, he's been there the whole time. Well, the beast in this book isn't good. There's a good guy in this book. But do you know that you see him all the way back at the beginning too? He's been there the whole time. But we don't see him in his fullness. We don't see him in his glory. We don't see him in his power until the morning comes. When the morning comes and Jesus is alive, the story has reached It's high point. That's why we're here. So if you'll stand with me out of respect for God's Word, what I want us to look at today is Jesus explaining the necessity of what He did. Luke chapter 24, verses 44, and your bulletin says through 49, but we're just going to go through 48 today. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 44. Then He said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary 
for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Excuse me. And you are witnesses of these things. Father, I pray that as we look to this Word today and we dwell on the fact that you, King Jesus, are alive, that you would bless us by that. And Lord Jesus, if there's anybody in here today who does not know you, I pray that you would save them today because you are alive and you can do that. And in your name is repentance and remission of sins for anybody who calls on you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So I want us to talk about Jesus' explanation of the resurrection this morning. What did Jesus have to say about His resurrection? Because folks got a lot of different things to say about the resurrection. They can say that it's, it's, they can say that it's a fun children's story. They can say that it's, it's, you know, it's a legend. Or The fact of the matter is it's, it's, it's literally true. It is historically true. And Jesus explained to us what it meant. So first I want us to see the first thing that Jesus told us was important is that the resurrection is now and has always been the center of the story. Guys, if you call yourself a Christian, ladies, if you call yourself a Christian, you spiritually live and die on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. If Jesus is alive, being a Christian is the most valuable thing in the universe. If Jesus is dead, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian anymore than if it values if it's valuable if you're a Smurf. Okay? If Jesus is dead, it doesn't matter what you call yourself. Jesus isn't saving you from anything. But if Jesus is alive, there is nothing more important than your relationship with Him. So first, the resurrection is the center of the story. Jesus says in verse 44, Then He said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. If you ever have had the privilege of of meeting, meeting a Jew... Um, they will pull out their scriptures and they don't necessarily call it a Bible. They call it a Tanakh. Um, that is a, that is a, it's an abbreviation of three parts the way they organize their Bible. If you, if you ever want to see uh, a, a Hebrew Bible the way the Jews organize it, I've got one I can show you. It's not in the same order as ours. It's called the Tanakh. And that stands for the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. The Torah means the law. The Nevi'im is the prophets. And the Ketuvim is the writings. And together, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, the law, the prophets, and the writings, or sometimes called the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, they comprise what the Jews would have recognized as the entirety of Scripture because they did not have the New Testament at, at, at that point. Okay, So that's the entirety of Scripture to them. So when Jesus says, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law, Torah, and the prophets, prophets, Nevi'im, and the Psalms, or the writings, Ketuvim, concerning me. Concerning me. That Jesus says Something that would have been totally and completely mind-blowing to His disciples at this moment. And that is that, hey, 
these scriptures that you've been hearing read to you since you were young enough to understand what you were hearing, they have always been about exactly what you're experiencing right now. They all led up to this moment. They have always been about me. They have always been about my sacrificial crucifixion and my glorious resurrection. It's always been about that. And if that was important enough for Jesus to say in verse 45, and He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures, understanding that the Bible is all about Jesus and all about the resurrection ought to be pretty important for us too, hadn't it? If it was important enough for him to stop before saying anything else, imagine this. They've run across Jesus now, that Jesus is is here with them. They're still in shock that they're seeing the risen Lord. And the first thing Jesus stops to do after eating a fish to prove to them he's there. Okay? This is another reason I love Jesus. It's like, hey y'all, do you have any fish? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I, yes, Jesus, I do. Are, are you real? Yes, here's a fish. Okay, now that you know I'm here, before I explain anything else, we need to have Bible study. You need to understand that this was always the plan. So let's take a quick look back at Scripture and see that Jesus is not just making this up. This has always been about Him. If you grabbed a handout on the way in... You'll see the first scripture I listed under this heading was Genesis twenty-two twelve, 12. <clears throat> and he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What story is this in the middle of? For those of you who know your Bibles, long, 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 long ago, there was a man named Abraham. And God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to leave the land of your fathers and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you offspring and I'm going to give you a land. And so Abraham gets up and he leaves. And crucial to this covenant was the fact that Abraham was going to have a son. Well, time went on and time went on and time went on and time went on and time went on. And And Abraham got older and older and older. And his wife, more importantly, got older and older and older and older and he still did not have a son until finally God works a miracle and his wife Sarah becomes pregnant with the child of his old age Isaac and he is the apple of Abraham's eye and he loves him and he's overjoyed and they throw a big party and Isaac has arrived. The promise of God has been fulfilled. Isaac is here. It's all coming true. And then one day, without any warning, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac and sacrifice him to me on a mountain that I'm going to show you as a burnt offering. And Abraham protests and says, No, God, why? Why are you doing this? That's not what he does. He gets up silently. And if you read Genesis 22, you've you've had thousands of years of history in Genesis told in the space of a couple of verses. But the detail in Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac is absolutely stunning because he gathers the wood and he saddles the donkey and he gets his servants and 
they load up and they get ready to go to this mountain. And Isaac goes with them and they're walking and you hear over and over and over again. Anytime Isaac refers to him, Oh my father, yes, oh my son. The, the relationship between the father and son is, is very clear. That this is very, very painful for Abraham. Isaac has no clue. And he tells his servants, my son and I are going up on the mountain. And we'll worship and then we'll return to you. And so the father in this story lays the wood for the sacrifice on the back of his son. This son that was given to him by miraculous birth. And this son carries the wood on his back up the mountain on which he is to be sacrificed in obedience to God. And he walks up this mountain and they build the altar and Isaac looks around. And by the way, Isaac is strong enough at this point that he can carry enough wood on his back for a sacrifice that large up the mountain. He's not a weak boy. Abraham, on the other hand, is an elderly man. If Isaac had wanted to deal with this situation, he could have. So Isaac gets to the top of the mountain and says, Oh, my father. Yes, my son? Uh, I see the fire. I see the wood. I see the knife. I don't see the lamb. And Abraham goes, God's going to provide my son. See, what's interesting is if you read it and you don't read it with any assumptions in your mind, what Abraham actually says is, God is going to provide my son. God had provided. He had provided his son. Yes, baby. And Abraham gets to the top of the mountain and he stretches out Isaac and lays him on the altar. And remember, Isaac is strong enough he could have prevented this. But he didn't. The father's son willingly stretched himself out on the altar of sacrifice so that his father could sacrifice him. And as the knife is coming down, God says, wait! It's not your son who's going to die on the mountain. I'm going to provide the lamb for the sacrifice. And 2,000 years later, he did. See, Genesis 22 was never about Abraham and Isaac. It was about Jesus and us. The son that was going to be sacrificed on the mountain was never Isaac. It was always going to be Jesus. Because 2,000 years later, more 1,000 years actually... There was going to be another son who walked up another mountain with wood on his back on which he was going to be sacrificed. And he was going to stretch out his arms and his father would not stay his hand. That the sun was darkened and the earth shook. And whereas Abraham was spared giving up his son, God the Father did not spare his son. He gave Jesus for us. You see Jesus in the Torah. Genesis is part of the Torah. What about the prophets? Isaiah 53, 
Verses 10 and 11, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, soul means life. The Hebrew word is nephesh. Life. Whatever it is in a human that makes them living. He will give his life an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. Well, wait a minute. If he's going to give his life as an offering for sin, how will, we, how will he see his offspring? How will he prolong his days? How can you be dead and then do things that only living people do? There's an easy answer to that. After you die, you become alive again. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. For by his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. That's the crucifixion and the resurrection in the prophets right there. And if you want to see more, read the rest of Isaiah 53. It's basically the fifth gospel. It's the life of Jesus in one chapter of an Old Testament prophet. You see Jesus in the law, you see Him in the prophets. And then in Psalm 16, verses 9-11, through 11, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. What is Sheol? It's the Hebrew word that sometimes gets translated in the New Testament uh, into Greek as Hades. It just means a place of the dead. The grave. The place where dead people go. So the psalmist in Psalm 16 says, You will not leave my soul in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That right there in Psalm 16, you've got the resurrection. You want more? Read Psalm 22. Psalm 22 perfectly outlines the crucifixion. It mentions the fact that the, the, the Messiah is going to be mocked. It mentions the fact that they're going to gamble away his clothes. It specifically says, you pierced my hands and feet. It begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In verse 1, which is exactly what Jesus said from the cross. So when Jesus opened their minds that they might understand the Scriptures, this is Jesus saying to them, hey, all of those years in synagogue, when you sang this psalm, when you read this prophet, when you read the story of Abraham offering Isaac, I want you to know that it was all leading up to this moment. This is all one continuous story and you're right here at the best part. See, people make mistakes with the Bible. They treat the Bible like it's a book of stories or a moral guide. It's not. Now, are there stories in it? Yes, but that, just because it's a story doesn't mean it's not true. History is nothing but stories. It's just stories that are true. Yes, the Bible's full of true stories. Does the Bible teach us how to live good moral lives? Sure it does. But is that its ultimate point? No. The ultimate point of the Bible is to point you to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, the one who provides us redemption and forgiveness of sins, and it has always pointed to this moment. God has been at work since humanity fell to restore it, to restore us, and to restore you. And Christ loved you enough to go to these links for you. He's been telling you this story for the entire Bible. Now this is just the real thing. 
So first, the resurrection has always been the center of the story. And then second, I want you to see that the resurrection is fulfillment of a covenant. Now what is a covenant? We, we throw that word around in church a lot. <clears throat> but when's the last time somebody actually defined a covenant for you? A covenant is kind of like a contract on steroids. Okay? The word in Hebrew for covenant has, has its root in the word cut. Has its root in the word cut. Um, and generally what would happen when a covenant was made, you can even go back and see God do this with Abraham, uh, they would cut an animal in two and split it in half. And the folks who made the covenant would walk between the two as they made the deal. And what that was basically saying is, if I back out on this, may the same thing happen to me that happened to that animal. It was a way of saying, I am staking my keeping this on my very life. It was the most solemn deal that you could make. And it was not one way, it was two way. God made a covenant with Israel. And listen to what He said in verse 46. This is Jesus in Luke 24, 46. Then He said to them, Thus it is written, it's in the text of the covenant, and thus it was necessary that this is what I always promised I was going to do for you. So there was no way for me to do this any other way. Well, if God's going to forgive us our sins, why did He have to go through something as nasty as the cross and as complicated as the resurrection? Well, because y'all, the wages of sin is death. That the law demands death for those who sin against God. We don't think of sin as, as big of a deal as it actually is. God has a much, much different view of sin than we do. We think of it as a mistake. He thinks of it as rebellion. We think of it as, it didn't hurt anybody. God thinks of it as an act of war. So, that's why it carries the death penalty. But God made a promise for there to be blessing. So, for there to be blessing on all the descendants of Abraham, if sin is allowed to have its way, that covenant never gets to be fulfilled. Something's got to deal with that sin. Thus it was written, thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Because it was written, it was necessary. Y'all, the law remained in force as long as it was unfulfilled. If you ever want to get scared by reading your Bible, you go on back to Leviticus and go over to Deuteronomy and read the list of rules that would have been incumbent upon you if it were not for the Lord Jesus Christ. Go read them. And then if you want to be scared even more, y'all come on Sunday nights. Next, start next week. We don't have Sunday night this week. But on Sunday nights, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is teaching what the law actually means. 
And Jesus says, you've heard it said to those who are of old, thou shalt not murder. And anyone who murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Anyone who insults his brother is liable to the council. And anyone who says to his brother, you fool, will be in danger of the hell of fire. In other words, it doesn't matter if you don't lay a finger on an actual other person. If you just think about hurting them in your head, you may as well have done it. Now, how many of you all have ever murdered somebody with your hands? If if you raise your hand right now, I promise you I'm calling the cops. Please don't. (laughs) Any of y'all ever murdered somebody? Go ahead, confess. Okay, now, don't raise your hands because I don't want to see every hand in this room. How many of you have ever murdered somebody in your mind according to what Jesus just said? You ever been angry at somebody? You ever insulted somebody? You ever thought you fool? about somebody? Have you ever hated somebody in your heart? We're murderers. That the law is not just about the outside, the law is about what's on the inside, and that remained in force. There's no way to get away from it. But praise God for Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Do not think that I came to, dest- to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now what did Jesus just say in Luke 24, 46? Thus it was written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day. What has Jesus done with the law? He fulfilled it. It's done. He did it for us. The covenant's a contract, right? Christ fulfilled our part and died on our behalf, and God fulfilled His part. And now all the promises are available to us in Jesus Christ. That you are forgiven of your sins because Christ died and rose for you for no other reason. If you're here today and you have never trusted Christ, let me say this with as much kindness and force as I know how to say it at the same time. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you are still dead in your sins. You are a dead man or a dead woman walking. That your sin guilt is still on you. That a lot of counselors will tell you, we we just need to deal with these feelings of guilt. Listen to your pastor telling you, you don't need to deal with the feeling of guilt. You need to deal with the reality of guilt. If you have never come to Christ, you are guilty and have been found guilty in the highest court of law there is. You have been found guilty by God Himself. But you can come to Jesus who has died for you and is risen and say, Jesus, you are alive. You have fulfilled the law for me. You have beaten death for me. Forgive me and make me right with God. And Jesus will do it like that. You can have new life right now. How does this whole resurrection thing work? 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Jesus couldn't forgive your sins if He was dead. 
He couldn't forgive your sins if He was dead. Your faith would be futile. But He is alive. So Romans 6, 8 through 9 applies. If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. How many of y'all love politics? You love reading it, watching it, listening to it. It's the highlight of your day. Anybody? Yeah, I didn't think so. Uh, there's something compelling about a promise fulfilled, isn't there? When somebody makes a promise and keeps it. Uh, This is why politicians get ridiculed all the time for their election promises. You ever heard somebody make a joke about election promises? You know why we joke about election promises? Because they all get made during the election and they never get fulfilled when the election's over. Right? Right? You say all the things to get all the people to like you and vote for you, and then once you're in the office and they can't get you out because they've already voted you in, you don't worry about it all that much. But then the next time the next election rolls around, you make some more promises to get the votes again. That's why we ridicule that. But it's also why if a politician ever does manage to keep a promise, it's electoral gold. He can look at you and say, hey, I promised to do this, and I did it. And that, that's a pretty big... Pretty big, you know, card in your pocket to be able to play. To say, I made a promise and I kept it. And the bigger the promise, the bigger the fulfillment. And the bigger the fulfillment, the more trust it generally engenders. Why? Because when a person makes a promise and keeps it, that says, hey, this person's trustworthy. When a person makes a promise and keeps it, it also means that person is competent. That they can actually do it. Let me ask you this question. What makes God more trustworthy than the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What is a bigger promise He could fulfill? There's not one. Now y'all, Jesus talked a big game while He was on earth, didn't He? You remember the woman at the well? When she, when she said, we know that Messiah is coming and, and He will teach us all things. And Jesus said, you're right, it'll be great when He gets here and then we can clear all this up. Is that what He said? No. He said, I am He. You're looking at Him. The Sanhedrin. This is... I. I can't even. We did this in Sunday school this morning. And our men's class and our women's class has, has different material. So, so ladies, I'm going I'm to I'm drop this on you. And y'all didn't, see, y'all didn't see this this morning, but y'all have before. Jesus goes before the Sanhedrin on Mark 14. <clears throat> in Mark 14, 61, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, I don't know a more clear question than that. Are you the Son of God? Jesus' response in verse 62. I am. Now, I don't know what you can mean other than I am when you say I am. Actually, I do. Do you know one reason they would have been so upset when Jesus said I am? Because back in Exodus... When Moses said, what if they tell me, what, what if they want to know what God sent, you, sent me to them? Who am I supposed to tell them sent me? 
And God said, tell them, I am sent you. It's the Hebrew word, Yahweh. It's the parsing out of a verb that literally means, I am. That's what it means. So if you've ever read your Bible and said, well, why in the world is God's name, I am? God's name is Yahweh. But when you translate Yahweh, it means I am. Why is God's name I am? Because out of the entirety of the universe, how'd you get here? Your parents. How'd they get here? Their parents. How'd they get here? Their parents. All the way back. How'd Adam get here? God. How'd God get there? He just is. The ultimate reality of the universe is when God looks out and says, I am. So Jesus made two statements at one time when they said, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Jesus looked them in the eye and said, I am. He's not just claiming that He is the Son of God. He is claiming divinity Himself. So, it's easy for somebody to say, I'm God. Anybody can say that, right? You can say that. I I wouldn't advise it. But you can say it. It's a lot bigger deal when you say, I'm God, and one day you're going to see me sitting exalted at the right hand of the power of God, and one day you're going to bow the knee before me. It's a big deal to say that and then them crucify you. Now, wouldn't it prove you right if three days later you got up and started walking around? When you get crucified after saying you're God and three days later you're up walking around, people ought to pay a little bit closer attention to whether or not you might actually be God. Right? You know, if I told you, you know, if I told you I'm a little purple monkey and that I die... And you're like, he wasn't a little purple monkey. And then I get up three days later and start walking around going, ooh, ooh, ah, ah, you better start referring to me as you little purple monkey. Because if I can die and come back to life, I'm probably who I said I was. Can any of y'all do that? Listen, when Jesus claims to be God and he makes a promise that he's going to rise three days later, and then he does it, You better bow the knee because there is no reason to believe he's not exactly who he said he was. And that means that everything else he said is just as important. You can take everything he ever said to the bank. It is the fulfillment of a covenant. He kept his word. Every single word God ever said, Jesus fulfilled. And he proved it when he walked out of that grave on the first Easter Sunday morning. There's proof. So the resurrection is, is, is the, uh, the center of the story. The resurrection is the fulfillment of a covenant. And finally, the resurrection is the beginning of our mission. And Jesus says in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. That word witness is the Greek word martis. It's where we get the word martyr from. We know martyrs as people who are willing to sacrifice everything they have for a particular cause, often making the ultimate sacrifice. And you know there were plenty of Christians who did that. 
They were fed to lions. They were crucified. They were exiled. They were murdered. Why did those Christians allow themselves to be put through that? How did they have that kind of endurance? Where did that kind of drive come from? How do you get someone like Thomas, who is my personal favorite disciple, because I think he's the most like us, how do you get someone like Thomas, who I don't think has a single line in Scripture in which he is not asking a doubtful question or making some sarcastic remark, how do you take him... And turn him into someone that church tradition says died all the way over in India because that's how far he went for the gospel. This guy who said, I'm not even going to hang out with y'all right now. I'm too scared of the folks who killed Jesus. And the next time, eight days later, when I get with you, I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to believe he's alive until I can see his hands and his feet. How do you end up reconciling that Thomas with somebody who died all the way on the far east of the Asian continent A martyr's death. How do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile that someone like Peter, who the night before Jesus was crucified, didn't even have the guts to tell a little servant girl by the fireside that he even knew Jesus? How do you reconcile that Peter with a Peter that is willing to get beaten, jailed, and ultimately executed? Church tradition says he was crucified upside down because he did not count himself worthy to die the same way as his Lord. How do you go from I don't know him to I'm not even worthy to die like he did, crucify me the other way? How do you change how do you explain that big of a change? How do you explain what onlookers would have called a maligned, persecuted, tiny sect of Judaism with around 120 followers growing within 400 years to be the official religion of the Roman Empire, the same empire, mind you, that killed Jesus, and is now the majority religion on the planet? How do you explain that? Maybe it's because those first 120 followers knew something. Maybe Thomas and Peter and the early Christians were willing to die because they had seen proof that death is kind of a pansy when it gets the right opponent. Maybe they had seen that death wasn't really all that final if you know the right people. Maybe they knew Jesus was alive. Because see, if Jesus is alive, that explains all of it. <clears throat> now you can take an atheist and you can, you can say, well, I've just never known any other instance of somebody that they made this up. They had to have made this all up. This is all a lie. This is all a fabrication. This is all, this is all a big scam. Can you really believe that someone rose from the dead? Absolutely. Well, how can you prove it? Well, let me ask you a question about your own nature. If you were claiming that someone had risen from the dead and you had the entire military of the most powerful nation on earth as well as the religious establishment breathing down your neck and threatening you with execution, would you really maintain a lie? Would you? If they said, if you claim and you stick by the claim that this man is alive, we're going to execute you. 
But if you say and you confess, he's actually dead, we just moved the body. You can be home by dinner and we'll never bother you again. Which would you do if it was a lie? You have nothing to gain by lying if he's actually dead, do you? You're just going to be killed. But if he's alive and you deny that, Well, who should you really be afraid of? Should you be afraid of Rome or should be afraid of you should should you be afraid of the person who Rome can kill but still can't get rid of him because he just comes back? Who should you really be afraid of? As for me in my house, I know who I would rather be afraid of. I don't fear the one who can just destroy the body. I fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And if Jesus Christ is alive, that ought to give me the get up and go to stand up against Rome, to stand up against my boss, to stand up against my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, my family, my co-workers, anybody who might say, your faith is silly, you could get so much farther ahead in life. Things would go so much simpler if you weren't just a crazy religious fanatic. Yet the problem with that is that I'm not a fanatic because Jesus is actually alive and I would rather have His favor than someone else's. See, if you don't really believe Jesus is alive, then what reason do you have to keep faking this? Why are you even here? If you think this is all fake, now y'all, I'll be honest with you, I'm glad you're here if you're just here for traditional purposes. If you're here because this is what you do until lunch is ready. I'm glad you're here because I get to share the gospel with you. But there's no value in being at church on Easter just to be at church on Easter if you don't believe that Jesus is actually alive. You're not getting any spiritual points for this. Okay? What is it that gets you right with God? It's having a relationship with the risen Christ. Well, Josh, that's hard. Yeah. It's hard to be out there and live for Him. But do you know what? i got 2,000 years of history that tells you if Jesus is alive, He'll get you through it. Acts 4, uh, verses 18 through 20. See, what happened is, is Peter and John had healed a guy out in the temple complex. And everybody wanted to know, how did this guy get healed? Where did this come from? And they started preaching Christ, crucified and risen. And the temple staff lost their minds. Because they're like, wait, 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 wait. Isn't this the God that we just killed? Isn't this the God that we just got rid of? And now they're saying He healed this man? And we don't know what to do about this because He's very obviously healed. Everybody knew He was sick. They knew He was messed up. And now all of a sudden, He's in His right mind. He's healthy. He's good to go. We can't deny that. But Jesus is dead, right? 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 And Peter and John go, y'all are freaking out over something you really don't have to. If you would just accept that He's alive and repent, then you could have this blessing too. But they're not willing to do that. So they do what anyone who denies Christ does whenever they're tired of hearing about the fact that He's in charge. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God you judge, for we cannot but speak the things we've seen and heard. Listen to this. Christian, I'm talking to you now. I've been trying to share the gospel and tell the folks in here who are lost, listen, if you'll just come to Christ, you can have forgiveness of sins. You can have grace. You can have all of that. But Christian, right now I'm speaking to you. 
if you can really get it in your mind and in your heart that Jesus is alive, if you can really dwell on that and get that and dig into that and let it dig into you, there is not a thing that the world can put in front of you that will stop you from living for Jesus. told you about one of my pastoral mentors one time that said I got saved back when I was years old and I ain't never got over it. Have you got over it? Have you forgotten the absolute universe changing miracle that Jesus Christ is alive? Have you forgotten? What are you doing with it? Well Josh, I don't know if I can I don't know if I have the strength to do what God wants me to do. Well, you're right. You don't. Stop asking whether or not you're strong enough. The answer is no. You're not. You don't have it in you. But do you know who does? Jesus. And the good news is, He's alive, so He can help you. So Mark and Joyce are about to lead us in a couple of verses of an invitation hymn. And I want to give you an opportunity to respond if you